Well, it is the beginning of the Advent season, as we know, because the candle on the table. It's a season of great joy and anticipation. Each year, we look with wonder at the miraculous coming of Christ. We imagine what it must have been like for Mary to conceive by the Holy Spirit and for Joseph to learn that his betrothed is pregnant and that the child is not his. That would be tension. We breathe a sigh of relief when God sends an angel to tell Joseph the good news that the son to be born would be the savior of the world, that all would be well for his marriage and for his family and for God's people who are in darkness. And we bite our nails, as it were, as the couple barely makes it to Bethlehem before Mary gives birth. And we rejoice with the shepherds as we hear the angelic song of glory to God in the highest. And we follow the Magi with intrigue as they travel west to Jerusalem and then on to Bethlehem. And we worship with them as they present their gifts to the Son of God, who is also the Son of Man. We feel the reality, perhaps this year especially, of the fact that between the first advent of Christ and his second, there is very much pain and sorrow that are as much a part of the story as are the wonders that we think of at Christmas. We include the Magi in the manger scene, and we usually end it there, but we easily forget that right after they visited the Messiah, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph fled to Egypt as Bethlehem lost their baby boys to senseless slaughter at the hands of a greedy ruler. And though sin and death are defeated at the cross of Christ and in his resurrection, it's not till his second coming that these things are banished forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And all of this is part of the anticipation of the Advent season. So if you would open with me to Matthew 5. We're going to consider the words of our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, the New Testament begins in Matthew with the genealogy of Jesus through Joseph, through his line. And what this does is it establishes right at the outset Jesus' legal right to the throne of David because Joseph, who is Jesus' legal father, is a descendant of David. And the throne of David must be established legally in order for it to be filled by one of David's sons. And it makes sense for Matthew to begin his gospel here since the purpose of his whole gospel is to commend Jesus, to present Jesus to the Jews as their long-awaited Messiah and King, the greater David who was to come. And so the Christmas story, as presented in Matthew, is the story of a royal birth in the most unceremonious way, although with angelic fanfare. And Matthew places the Sermon on the Mount just a couple of pages after the Christmas story. And the birth of the king is followed, as it were, by the declaration of the king of what life in his kingdom looks like for his kingdom citizens. And what we saw in our last sermon on the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus' coming was in order to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. If you would look at verse 17, which we considered last time. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus came to fulfill 
the law and the prophets to fulfill the Old Testament. He kept the law for us perfectly, that his righteousness might be given to us. He is the one, the substance to which the shadows of the ceremonies and the sacrifices and certain Old Testament figures pointed. He is the final sacrifice given once for all who bore the penalty of our lawlessness and saved us. Jesus is the point of the Old Testament just as surely as he is the point of the new. And today I want to draw your attention to the reason that this is the case. In other words, why did Jesus come not to abolish but to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures? How come he did that? And the answer is given to us very clearly in verse 18, which we're going to look at today. For truly, Jesus says, he says, truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. When Jesus came, he was so radically different from the Jewish establishment that many people considered that he might be putting away the old things of the Mosaic law and bringing a new thing. He was the Messiah who was to come who would change the game completely. But he says, no, that isn't all why I've come. I haven't come to abolish one aspect of God's word. No, I have come to fulfill it. I've come to fulfill it because every single part of God's word must be fulfilled down to the most minute detail because God's word is perfect. And this is the reason Christmas had to happen exactly as it did. This is the reason we love the story. And the reason is because it was a fulfillment of the Old Testament down to the detail. Nothing left to chance. Nothing out of order. See, you wouldn't know it by the way that many Americans celebrate Christmas. But Christmas is more than anything a Bible holiday. And it's especially an Old Testament one. One, without the Old Testament, it would make no sense. And so it seems appropriate for us to begin our Advent season by considering the character of God's written word that his incarnate word came to fulfill. And if I may, I'd suggest that even in a year like this, with all the trials and tribulations I know many of you have gone through, that we can celebrate Christmas with true hope in not only the Christ who came, but the Christ who is coming, because God's word must be fulfilled. This is the point of what Jesus is saying to us here, that God's perfect word endures forever. And because it endures forever, all of it will be fulfilled. Some theologians have considered that when we're talking about the attributes of God, we might appropriately be referring to God's attributes as his perfections. Because every aspect of who God is, is filled with glory and perfection. And I want to take a similar approach to considering the attributes of God's word as Jesus speaks to us in verse 18 about the Bible. We're going to look today at five perfections of God's word. And in so doing, I hope that we're going to see and be convinced once again of the perfection of God's word and how the Savior is held out for us there so beautifully, so perfectly, and so clearly. And that we would be prompted by the Holy Spirit as we consider these things to treasure it, and to obey it, and to speak it, and to defend it, to let it govern and rule our lives, which is how Christ rules in our hearts through his word. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Well, the first perfection we see about the Bible in Jesus' statement here in verse 18 is that it is inspired by God. It is inspired by God. 
And when we affirm that the Bible is inspired by God, we are saying precisely what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, that well-known verse, all scripture is breathed out by God. It is breathed out by God. You will not find a more biblical definition of inerrancy than that. And here, all scripture Paul refers to is the Old Testament because the New Testament was at that very moment being written. And so referring to the Old Testament and also to all of scripture, by extension, we know that it is breathed out by God. In other words, he authored it. He gave it. He spirated it, as it were, through the work of humans, of the human scripture authors. And even though these men, these human writers, are fallible and sinful and capable of error of themselves, because God is involved giving that word, it is exactly the Bible that God intended us to have. By way of illustration, consider Jesus, who is fully God, is fully man. And even though he is born of a, a woman with a sinful nature, and all of her other children would have sinful natures, yet because of God's miraculous conception of Jesus, Though he is born of a sinful woman, Jesus himself, while fully human, does not have a sinful nature. He cannot. And likewise, because God was directly involved in the giving of scripture at the hands of the prophets and the apostles, the Bible also is fully of God and fully of man, perfect and holy, without corruption. It is God's inspired word directly given to us, by him at various times and in various ways, as the author of Hebrews says. And when Jesus says in our text that nothing can pass from the law until all is accomplished, he is assuming the truth of the inspiration of Scripture. Because if it were merely of human origin, then surely it could pass away. Surely it could change with the times. Its relevance for our lives could expire. Its commands could be changed or become outdated. We could get a new perspective on Paul, updated information from archaeology or science that would show that the Bible is in fact properly a relic of the past, but Jesus is no such thing. Jesus doesn't leave us that option because Jesus knows that God's word is inspired. And if God is the author of the Bible, then the second perfection of scripture that we can glean from verse 18 is that God's word is authoritative. It is authoritative. When it comes to merely human kings and emperors, the saying is what? Your wish is my command. And if it's true of human rulers, then when it comes to the divine king of the ages, how much more true is it that what he says is binding on all people for all time? I know that if you received a letter personally verified to you from the president saying he would like to see you, I think you would go. If you were in the Navy and your admiral commanded you to do this, that, or the other, the question in your mind wouldn't be whether to do it or not. It would simply be how quickly and how well and how fully can I obey the command. The command is accepted as authoritative because of the authority of the command giver. And when it comes to scripture, the words of God are supremely authoritative as he is infinitely greater than any human leader. And so Jesus says that nothing can pass from the law until all is accomplished. And when he uses the term law, this implies the authority of the lawgiver. 
And for the Jews who heard this sermon for the very first time, they would understand Jesus to be talking about the law that was given to Israel, the law that Israel was bound to obey by her very constitution as God's people given at Mount Sinai. Israel, in the midst of slavery, drawn out of Egypt, taken by God into the wilderness where he meets them at a fiery mountain and they see and they hear and they're terrified because of the presence of God and then this God who says, you who have nothing to commend yourselves to me are now my special possession, my treasured nation, and I give you my law and you obey it because we are in covenant with one another. Israel would not have understood the law to be any more optional for them than it would be optional to eat or breathe if they wanted to live. And over the next thousand years, we see their history as one of throwing off the law, disobedience upon disobedience, finally resulting in God's promise that he made in the law that if they did such things, they would be cast away, and they were, from God's presence into exile in Assyria and then in Babylon. And someone might look here at Jesus' words in verse 18 and think that because Jesus specifically says the law, that somehow he's not referring to the rest of Scripture. They might concede that Jesus is teaching the permanence of the law, but not the integrity and permanence of other parts of Scripture that are not the law. But this cannot be the case for a couple of reasons. First, because no part of Scripture may be divided from any other. We rightly make distinctions between the law of Moses and the Psalms, between the epistles and the prophets, between the wisdom literature and the gospels. And yet, all of them are equally inspired, and all of them bear God's divine authority. And second, while Jesus may in fact be referring to the law of Moses specifically here, he began this section of the Sermon on the Mount in verse 17 by referring to all of Scripture. As we saw last time, he refers to the law or the prophets, a phrase that always meant for the Jews everything written in the Old Testament from beginning to end. This was the only Bible in existence at the time that Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. And so what Jesus implies here about the authority of the law applies equally to the authority of the whole Old Testament and also by extension to every part of Scripture that God has inspired, including the new All of scripture is God's authoritative word. If you've been a Christian for any length of time and you've considered what's in the law of Moses, all the different rules, regulations, and ceremonies there, that naturally raises a question for us that we actually have to take seriously. What is our relationship as new covenant Christians to the old covenant law of Moses? The New Testament answers that question. And we have to get it straight, lest we risk unfaithfulness. But I'm going to suggest that that is most appropriately dealt with in the sermon coming in verse 19. But for today, let it suffice that we be convinced that all of God's word is inspired and all of it is authoritative. And that when we have properly interpreted every part of it, we may properly apply it in Christian faithfulness. Well, a third perfection of God's word that we can clearly see and explicitly taught here by Jesus is that the Bible is God's inerrant word. The word inerrant means exactly what it sounds like. It is without error in any part. Even though it's written by men who are capable of writing down an inaccurate detail or accidentally giving a false doctrine, 
Because God inspired the Bible, it contains no inaccuracies, no untruths, no inconsistencies. As Proverbs 30 and verse 5 says, the word, every word of God proves true. The Bible's inerrancy has fallen on hard times in church history as of the past hundred years or so. As for most of the history of God's people, the Bible was received as holy and completely true in everything that it affirms and records. Yet now, it's not given that a particular university, seminary, church, or Christian will believe that about the Bible. They may say that the Bible is true in a sense, but that it contains details that have been shown by history or science to be inaccurate. They may say that it's inspired in the fact that it does still inspire us, but it's not inspired in the sense that the Bible speaks about. Or perhaps it affirms some true things about God in the Old Testament that are different or incompatible with things affirmed by God about God in the New Testament. But Jesus says something totally different when he says, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. So remember, the only Bible written at the time of Christ was the Old Testament, and it was written in Hebrew. Jesus is speaking about it here in verse 18. And the New Testament that would come soon after Christ was written in Greek. And so Matthew is writing in Greek. And so when he records Jesus here saying, not an iota, we recognize the iota as the smallest uh, letter of the Greek alphabet. And for the Jews hearing this, it would have been an equivalent to the smallest letter of a Hebrew alphabet in which the law was written, which was the yod. A yod, which is something very much like a comma. Uh, just that small, flick of the pen. Whereas we put the comma at the bottom of the line, the yod, though, is placed at the top of the line. Um, it's just a tiny little letter. And the dot that Jesus mentions is smaller than a letter. It's just a stroke of the pen that distinguishes one letter from another in the Hebrew alphabet. You can think of it um, by comparison in terms of our O and Q. The O and the Q are the exact same shape. From a distance, you may not be able to distinguish them at all, but when you're looking carefully, you realize that just a little scratch of a pen at the bottom of the Q makes it a very different letter than an O. And likewise, a little hook off the edge of a Hebrew letter can make all the difference in distinguishing one letter from another, one word from another word. And Jesus' teaching here is unmistakable. He says not only is God's word inspired generally, not only is it inspired by God down to the word, it is inspired by God down to the smallest stroke of the pen that's part of the letter, that is part of one word. In the smallest detail, God has inspired his word, given it, and that's the precise perfection of the Bible as originally given by God. And because he gave every single detail of his word, it's impossible that it could contain error or inaccuracy or falsehood. This was Jesus' view of the scriptures, and if we would follow our Lord, it must be our view of the scriptures as well. It is the highest possible view, a view that has become very unpopular, a view that is not trendy, and yet a view that for every faithful believer is held with treasured preciousness. We want to think God's thoughts after him about his Bible. And we can have full assurance from no less an authority than the Son of God 
that when we are using a copy of the Bible that faithfully communicates or translates what God originally gave, that that copy of the Bible is true. We can have full assurance from Jesus that when we have properly interpreted any part of the Bible, it will have no error in its history, no scientific inaccuracies, no false theological claims or ethical commands that lead us astray. It will never mislead, never fail, never crumble, never fall out from under you as you're building your life upon it. And that, my friends, is news we desperately need to hear. And it is news that comforts our hearts. And yes, it's true that some people have mishandled the Bible, have failed to take into account the different genres of writing that are there. They failed to interpret those genres according to the rules of normal language, and they've come up with some really funky ideas, and they've done some very, very bad things as a result of their mishandling of Scripture. And yet that mishandling of Scripture does not in any way compromise the truth of the Bible's inerrancy. When handled correctly, the Bible cannot err. When mishandled, the Bible cannot err, but the interpreter can. Yet we can have utter confidence in the truth of our Bibles. So God's word is inspired and full of authority in our lives. It's without error as God originally gave it, as well as accurate in any translation of the original. That's, that's faithful. And the fourth perfection that we see Jesus affirming here about God's word is that it is enduring, friends. It is enduring. He says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And this is really the crux of what Jesus is saying as he transitions into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount where he's going to deal with specific aspects of God's law. He's already dealt with the character of a Christian in the Beatitudes. He's dealt with their function in the world as salt and light. And now, establishing the truthfulness of God's word, he's then going to go and apply God's word to God's people in his kingdom. And he gives the most solemn affirmation about the Bible when he does so. He says, truly, which translates the word amen, I say to you, Truly, as long as the universe endures, God's word will endure. So friend, no matter where you are on a given day, if you happen to find yourself somewhere in the universe, you can be sure that God's word is enduring. Because his word will endure as long as the universe endures. And this is just good theology. Jesus is modeling to us the very best kind of theology. He knows his Bible. He's taking it at face value when properly understood, he's speaking it, and then he's showing you what it means by what it says. He knows Psalm 119 and verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Perhaps our Lord is recalling Isaiah 40 in verse eight. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And this truth about the word of God actually answers one of the most common objections to the Bible's inerrancy. Because we're told by those who deny the Bible's inerrancy that because we don't have the original Hebrew manuscripts that were written, we don't have the original Greek manuscripts that were written, that we don't really have any hope of recovering what God originally said. And we're told that because the ancient copies that we do have, which are voluminous, by the way, 
because they contain different readings from one another at various points all throughout that we don't know exactly what the Bible originally said. And yet notice what God says in Psalm 119. He declares that God's word is forever fixed in the heavens. Some theologians have rightly pointed out that God never promises an exactly precise and perfect copy of his written word on earth. But he does say that his perfect word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And yet a reliable copy of God's eternal word on earth in our Bibles is in fact implied by what Jesus teaches in Matthew 5.18. Because if the smallest letter or even part of a letter of God's perfect word cannot pass until all is accomplished, does it not make sense that God would providentially protect, preserve the transmission of his word so that as the church is about the business of continuing to hand the Bible down in future generations, that we would know exactly what's going on in his word as it is accomplished? And that is exactly what we see happening. You see, there have never been a shortage of enemies of God's word, never a lack of people who want to destroy it. I think of Jehoiakim, that wicked king of Judah, who when Jeremiah was prophesying about the fall of Jerusalem, he didn't like so much what God was saying. So he got the scroll, he read it, and then he cut off sections and burned it. He made a big bonfire with the original copy of Jeremiah. What are we to do? Well, what does God do? The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And many similar words were added to them. Go ahead, burn it. We could do this all day. The word's firmly fixed in the heavens. You can't touch it with the flames. God can always preserve, give, and continue giving his word to his people, and he does. Evil people can try to destroy it all day long, but it's firmly fixed in the heavens. He can and has and will providentially preserve it so that we have a reliable record of what he has spoken. Friends, the thousands of Hebrew and Greek manuscripts of the Bible, they agree together so incredibly that no serious case can be made against the integrity of our Bibles. And the differences that are there have no impact on biblical doctrine, no impact on the message that we cherish in the gospel. They've been compared, worked out, and are continuing to be studied so that we have faithfully understood what God has originally spoken without question. He spoke his word in inspiration, authority, inerrancy, and it endures. I am, for one, very glad. And the fifth thing we see about God's word in Matthew 5.18 is that it will be fulfilled. God's perfect word will be fulfilled. He says that all will be accomplished. In fact, this is, again, why he came. This is why we have Christmas. This is because God's word will be fulfilled. Jesus came, he says in verse 17, to fill up the Old Testament to the brim. It spoke of him. It told of his life, his death, his resurrection. Picture after picture is painted of Jesus in ceremonies, sacrifices, people, types. And they predict the rebellion of Israel and her exile, as well as the return of the Lord one day to usher in his kingdom and reign forever with his people. His scriptures will be fulfilled. And point for point, not one letter that makes up one word will fall to the ground because God cannot lie. 
and his perfect word endures forever. Perhaps right about now you're feeling a little like David in Psalm 19 when he says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Weary friend, are you not somewhat revived to see that that Bible that you're so familiar with is in fact such a miraculous gift, such a, an intricately watched over gift by God handed down through the ages for you. We so often take for granted the Bible that is the very treasure that the apostles and prophets and martyrs died to be able to give to us. We are the heirs of this great book. And so we ask, if God's word is in fact so resplendent and glorious in its perfections, then how do we as God's people respond? What should be the posture of our lives toward this precious word? Well, I would suggest to you four postures that we should have toward God's word. The first thing that we must do with the Bible to respond to it for what it is, is to receive it. We must receive it. And this is what we heard read earlier in our call to confession. This is James, right out the bat with his epistle, says this, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. To meekly receive the word of God is to embrace it for the perfect word of God that it is. To give hold of it in our hearts, to take it at face value, to give our lives to it. Specifically, there's two ways that this needs to happen, and both are entirely necessary if the word of God is to do its saving work in our hearts. And the first is this. We receive God's saving word by receiving his incarnate word, Jesus Christ. He is, as we saw in verse 17, the entire point of the scriptures. He is the incarnate word, the sinless, eternal word of God, the second person of the Trinity who took on human nature at Christmas and dwelt among us to fulfill what the word of God had said must be accomplished for our salvation. His perfect life given to us, our sinfulness put upon his shoulders, his resurrection declaring his victory. He is the word of God who must be received by faith and repentance as we abandon all hope of our own efforts and cling wholly upon Jesus' name. See, the Jews of Jesus' day made the fatal error of of thinking that they were accepting the written word of God and giving esteem and honor to the written word of God. All the while, they were rejecting the incarnate word of God and thus denying everything that their precious scriptures had told them they must embrace. But we, by God's grace, must be those who receive the incarnate word of God by faith. Have you received this precious Christmas gift by faith? Is your trust in Christ alone? If we receive the incarnate word of God in Jesus Christ, we will also assuredly receive God's written word in the Bible. We will receive God's written word in the Bible, again, embracing it. Because it's a contradiction to claim to love Jesus but to neglect the Bible. The Bible is full of him. 
We can't afford to neglect it. And we show our love for our Lord by wanting as much of him as possible. And where we find as much of him as possible is in the pages of our Bibles from Genesis to Revelation. The Christian life is one of lovingly receiving Christ as he's held out for us in the scriptures. A life of reading all of God's word regularly and taking it seriously. And so we must, if we want to follow where Jesus leads us in the Sermon on the Mount, we must examine our heart's reception of God's written word and ask, what kind of a place does it find there? What kind of a place do we give to it in our schedules? Does it fill our homes and our mouths? Is it to us, like the psalmist said, sweeter than honey and more precious than gold? A test of whether or not we have given the word of God this kind of reception in our lives is our obedience to that word, which is the second posture of God's people toward the word. Obedience to the word. Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so when God gives a command in scripture, it's far too natural and easy for folks, and a lot of people do treat it this way, like a very, very wise suggestion that we will uh, surely note. And then when it comes time for New Year's resolutions, we'll examine the list, take what we want, and move on. But that is not the posture of the Christian toward the commands of God. If we love the Lord, then we might show that by what we could call reflexive obedience. I haven't had this done for a long time. I'm not even sure if doctors do it anymore. The little tap the knee thing, and the knee goes flying, and your leg goes flying up, right? It's reflexive. When the word of God taps our heart, we should reflexively obey. When we expose ourselves to the word of God, it should be our impulse as believers to not ask whether or not we're going to do it, but how best to do it most fully right away. That is very close to the heart of godliness. A third posture of God's people toward his word is that as it is received, it's also spoken. I don't know if anybody used to watch the show Hoarders. Well, it's good to treasure God's word in your heart, but shame on us if we hoard it there. God's word in our hearts is meant to be spoken. The prophets and the apostles received God's word in order to give it to God's people, to preach it to the lost, that they might be saved, and they were persecuted for it. And yes, there may be discomfort, for sure, in speaking the word of God, and yet we cannot afford not to do it if we understand what the word of God is saying. If we are convinced that it is the word that once implanted is able to save the soul, how could we not speak it to unbelievers in our lives? And so we speak the word of God in evangelism to the lost. And we speak it in songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another and to God, as we're commanded in Colossians 3. It is, in fact, a command of God to gather and sing. A Christian who is songless is a disobedient Christian. This is non-optional. The word of God is sealed into our hearts as we sing its truths, as we encourage one another. If you ever stop for just a moment during corporate worship and listen to the sound of the saints, joining with the choirs of the church triumphant in heaven and angels whom we do not see, yet we will see, it is a profound thing that is happening. We speak God's word in song, declaring its truths and glorifying God with its doxologies. And we must speak the word of God in faithful biblical counsel to one another. Friend, do you know how much you need each other? We can't afford to be without each other. This year has shown us how isolating isolation can be. 
And I hope that we found at least this much, that we can't afford to waste any opportunities to encourage one another with God's word, to counsel one another from God's word, to minister comfort from God's word. It's healing. And so commit to speak it to the believers in your life. And know that as we do speak the word of God, whether to the lost or perhaps to a brother or sister who is in sin, there will be resistance along the way. There's always resistance to the word of God. Those who reject God will often reject his word and try to bring up arguments against it, perhaps charge it with error, come up with some very reasonable sounding excuse as to why that doesn't apply to them. And yet we have weapons for that kind of a warfare and they aren't made by Glock, Smith, or Wesson. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10 exactly what kind of weapons we have. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What are these strongholds? Well, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. It is our call as believers, friends, to defend the word of God. Not because God's word is powerless, not because it can be damaged somehow if we don't do our job, no, but because we are called to give a reason for the hope that we have, and our hope is anchored here in the infallible, inerrant, perfect, authoritative, enduring, and fulfilled word of God. And so we can defend it as we are called. Because the Bible, friends, is entrusted to the church, and the church is called to defend it. When Paul wrote his very last letter before he died, he said to Timothy, I'm sorry, it was in 1 Timothy, not the very last letter, but not too far from it. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Church, we are the defenders of the word of God. It is not Hear me, it is not up to the publishing houses. It is not up to the nonprofit ministries or to committees. It is up to the church. And those things have their valuable place as they are called upon by the church and supplied by the church with Christ-centered evangelical scholars who treasure and believe in God's perfect word. The saints are the defenders of the truth. And if you are in Christ, then this job has been entrusted to you as part of the church. For you are a living stone in the wall of God's defense of his word. And we must make sure that our stone is not the point at which there's a leak. And this is part of the job of pastors and elders to equip you to do that job well. This is one of the things that happens in Sunday seminars when there are Sunday seminars during no pandemics. And this is partly why we have small groups and it happens as a beautiful byproduct and part of corporate worship and the faithful preaching of the word. Friends, God's perfect word endures forever. It is about Jesus. It is for Jesus. It holds together in Jesus. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord tells us what it is as God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative, enduring, and fulfilled word to which we respond with a yes and amen by receiving it, obeying it, speaking it, and defending it. And as we do, we find happening exactly what the Apostle Paul said would happen in Ephesians 4, that we will attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. And what better way to embark upon this Advent season than by binding ourselves once again to the written word that God's incarnate word came to fulfill, so that we too may come and see him and worship him as he is worthy. Please pray with me. Oh, Father, we are humbled as we consider what your word is. Your son, whom it reveals. Your son, to whom it leads us. Your spirit, who awakens our hearts to it and interprets it to us. The salvation that is sure, that we need not doubt, that we need not fear, but that we may have certainty in your promises. That we of all the people on the earth may know the God who created all things. That we may worship you as your word says. That we may rejoice even through trials. When the world is broken, we are made whole by it. When the world is despairing, we speak of the hope of it. And when sin and guilt and condemnation come crashing down upon the human heart, we see our sufficient Savior there, saying it is finished. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us to open our Bibles with fresh wonder, to keep opening our Bibles with great diligence and discipline, to see there things that we've never seen before, things that have always been there and yet we have neglected. Help us, Lord, to become the people of the Bible that you have called us to be, that you have equipped us to be, and that you are continuing to minister to us to be. And all of this for the sake of Jesus and his glory, that your glory, O Lord, may cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. We are privileged as a church to be able to partner with some who have gone out from among us to bring that word to people who have no Bible, to people who have no knowledge of that word. And may we continue to pray for them and labor with them that the nations might know the only Savior given for their salvation who came at Christmas, that we might rejoice and have hope in the midst of darkness. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.